0: Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports. What a show we have for you today. I'm not joking. You're going to be exhausted when we're done with this uh, show today. Uh, we've got Matt Gates, a congressman from Florida, to talk about Russiagate. And we've got Jerry Falwell, Jr., the head, the president of Liberty University. Two great guests, two incredible stories of media neglect, media negligence, media malfeasance. And uh, a lot of new developments to talk about. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna be talking about that. I've got a couple of stories on justthenews.com that you're gonna want to hear about. Uh, hey, Twitter and your fact checkers, you might want to go back and recheck that claim on President Trump that there's no evidence of mail-in ballot fraud because we found a lot. And I'm gonna give you my seven or eight top things to watch in the Russia and Ukraine investigations, the investigation of the investigators. Eight things to watch over the next couple of months. All that when we, uh, when we come back from the commercial break. But first, let's hear from our sponsors and our advertisers. Please remember to support them. They make this show and Just the News possible. All right, folks, welcome back to the uh, show and from the commercial break. And before we get to a lot of news, and we have a lot, both in interviews with Matt Gates, the congressman, and Jerry Falwell Jr., the Liberty University president. Uh, first, I want to tell you about an exciting development uh, at Just the News for all of our Just the News fans. So yesterday, we launched a new store, jtnshop.com. That stands for JTN, Just the News, jtnshop.com. We've got some really great items here, gadgets for the home, like AirPods for your, your music uh, listening We've got uh, gifts for dad, including uh, my favorite, uh, some mint coins from the U.S. Mint with Donald Trump uh, uh, recognition on them. I think that you'd really enjoy that. We've got masks and hand sanitizer for all of us worried about uh, the pandemic. And uh, my personal favorite, because I've been using this now for a couple of years, the um, Clean Phone Pro. This thing is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, I leave my phone around all day long when I'm out visiting. I'm at the White House. I'm at Congress. It's out collecting germs and viruses all day. I'm putting it up to my face. This device, you stick it into the um, uh, little box and a blue light comes on and it sanitizes it. Gets rid of all the bacteria, viruses and germs on it. And uh, within a few minutes, it's clean and it sanitizes the same way that hospitals are sanitizing their masks and how other uh, people who need to keep a very sterile environment are using it. I love this thing. I use it once a day. My wife talked me into it. You will not be disappointed by it. But anyways, there's a whole bunch of gifts on here. Like I said, coins, masks, gadgets, sanitizer, uh, and, and the Clean Phone Pro, my personal favorite. Uh, go check it out today, jtnshop.com. You can also type in shop.com. Either address on the web will get you there. Um, And here's the best part about it. If you like something on here and you buy it because it makes sense for you, it's a high-quality product, good for you, your family, your friends, some of the proceeds go back to Just the News to support our reporting and to support our podcasting like John Solomon Report. So great uh, opportunity for us to provide you some great product offerings and hopefully for you to help support our uh, journalism at justthenews.com. And John Solomon reports. All right, enough with the pitch. Let's get on to the news. First up, my colleague, Daniel Payne. He joined us a couple of weeks ago. This reporter, Daniel, is one of the best. He is breaking stories every day that are making a difference. And here's my one, my favorite one from today because it doesn't get any better than this when it comes to checking the establishment, the people in power. As you know uh, from our podcast Tuesday, Twitter decided to – Uh, challenge uh, President Trump's tweets that claim that uh, mail-in balloting, mail-in elections would result in an increase in fraud, voter fraud. And, of course, uh, Twitter claimed, uh, put a disclaimer on the president's tweet saying there's no evidence of it. Well, I got to tell you what, I think the Twitter fact-checkers better go back to school, better go back and do their job, because here's what we found, thanks to the great reporting of Daniel Payne, It turns out there are dozens, dozens of convictions and prosecutions since 2016, since Trump was elected, of mail-in ballot fraud. And in general, larger voter fraud, there's more than 200 cases that have been uh, resolved with convictions or are ongoing with prosecutions. Uh, This is important data. It, It shows that Twitter's censorship was misguided, at least in this attempt with President Trump. Let me give you some example uh, of uh, some of the cases that Daniel uh, dug up that are really important. 2016 election, the case was brought in 2017, but an Indiana police officer named Lowell Colon was convicted of absentee ballot fraud in an attempt to help his father win a city council election. He eventually pled guilty to to four felony counts of voter fraud. Uh, Prosecutors claimed what he was doing was he was filling out false registrations and forging signatures. Um, uh, to help his dad win a city council seat. That's just one example. In 2018, that was in the first case was in Indiana. Let's go to Florida. Brett Warren uh, was arrested after he stole five absentee ballots and fraudulently voted with them. He pled guilty or he pled no contest to two charges of false swearing in uh, and was convicted. And uh, another one down in Alabama, a former Gordon, Alabama mayor, Albert Melton. He was convicted of absentee ballot fraud in a mail race he won by just 16 votes. When you cheat, when you're that, got a, that close of a margin, it really could potentially change the outcome of an election. We've got many examples of ongoing uh, fraud. Uh, 2018 New Mexico authorities have indicted Laura Seeds on 13 counts of voter fraud related to her husband's 2016 mail race. Uh, mayoral race. Seeds was eventually convicted in part for illegally possessing two absentee voter ballots. Her husband, Robert, won the race by, guess what? Two votes. Hmm. Sounds suspicious. This is why the president and why Republicans and many people are concerned about going to an all-mail-in ballot without better protections, without uh, better auditing, without better ID checking, uh, because we know, without question, there are real cases several dozen that Daniel just tracked down where fraud has already been found, where people have pled out and, be, and been convicted. We have many examples of um, deceased registrants of being allowed to vote. We've got people who double registered in two places and vote in two places. And just this past week, in the last week, there were two new cases of voter fraud, one involving mail-in, one involving old-fashioned ballots uh, that broke with the Justice Department the U.S. Justice Department under Attorney General Bill Barr. First off, last week, a Democratic Party official in Philadelphia pled guilty to a ballot stuffing, uh, ballot box stuffing scheme. Uh, Dominic DeMuro, who was a ward chairman in Philadelphia, admitted that he had fraudulently stuffed the ballot box by literally standing in a voting booth and voting over and over as fast as he could while he thought no one was looking. And so he... Uh, ends up uh, getting convicted. That is a contemporaneous, real example of voter fraud. Now, not mail-in fraud. Let's take you to a brand new case of mail-in fraud. Pendleton County, West Virginia, just late last week. And you may remember seeing the story on our site, Just the News. U.S. Attorney's Office in West Virginia says that Thomas Cooper, a U.S. Postal Service worker, attempted election fraud by uh, altering, using his pen, altering the request of five at mail-in ballot requests so that people would get Republican ballots instead of the Democratic ones they um, were asking for. So real live, fresh examples just a few days before Twitter decided to censor or uh, amend President Trump's Twitter uh, claims that mail-in uh, balloting may result in increased fraud. You go, ought to go check this story out on justthenews.com. It's on the homepage, Daniel Payne. Keep an eye on him. He's doing great work. We're going to try to have him on the podcast next week. But one of the big stories on our site today that people are talking about and uh, and uh, tweeting about and, and sharing around the country. Now, I wanted to do something before we get to the incredible upcoming interviews. Matt Gates, Jerry Falwell Jr., just a few minutes away. But before we do that, I want to get to my list of things. People have been tweeting at me and texting me and calling me and emailing me the last few days saying, I, there's so many developments, I can't keep track of what's going on and in the investigation of the investigators. This is both the russian and Ukraine fronts. We talk about that often on the show. So I wanted to give you my list of uh, six, seven, eight things that I think are going to be the most important things to watch from now, post-Memorial Day, to Labor Day. And let me start with the big one, because next week, Rod Rosenstein, the former deputy attorney general, the guy that gave us Bob Mueller. Remember, he appointed the special prosecutor. Uh, He's going to testify before Senate Judiciary Committee and Senator Lindsey Graham, the very first witness. We're finally getting hearings in the Judiciary Committee. We're getting subpoenas there. And so here are some things that we should wonder what Rod Rosenstein is going to say. Will he admit that he... And um, Deputy FBI Director, then Deputy FBI Director Andy McCabe, met and talked about the idea of wearing a wire on the president to try to catch him in an act of obstruction. That's something that he's never had to answer under oath. We'd like to know, was Rod Rosenstein involved in a plot, a thought, to spy on his own boss? Uh, That could be really interesting. Here's another one. We now know that two of the four FISA warrants that were filed in the Russia case Uh, The ones against Carter Page were withdrawn. Guess who signed one of those? You got it. Rod Rosenstein. So what will Rod Rosenstein say? Did he actually read the FISA warrant? Does he believe he was misled? Will he dump on the FBI? Will he talk about whether or not he knew that Carter Page wasn't a spy for Russia? He was actually an asset for the CIA. Because by the time he signed that um, final fourth search warrant, surveillance warrant, FISA warrant, uh, the FBI emphatically, irrefutably knew that Carter Page wasn't a bad guy. He was actually someone working for the CIA. So I'd like to know what Rod Rosenstein has to say about that. And here's one more for him. And uh, uh, when he scoped out the investigation for Robert Mueller and he wrote that scoping memo we talked about in this show just a week or two ago, did he know that it was relying on evidence from the Steele dossier that had already been debunked? disproven by the FBI, specifically related to Carter Page. There's only two options here, and neither one of them are good. He was either ignorant or he knew and, and uh, went ahead with it anyways. Those are the questions that Rod Rosenstein should face next week, and uh, we have a great opportunity with uh, that hearing to get to the bottom of what his role was and does he think he was misled or was he a willing participant in what we now know to be the Russia case misconduct. All right, so that's the first thing. Rod Rosenstein's testimony, development one to watch. Development two, Lindsey Graham is going to be dropping subpoenas on a lot of people. I'd like to see who he focuses on. Does he subpoena James Comey? Does he subpoena President Obama and the White House records from the old administration? Does he subpoena Susan Rice? Uh, There are a lot of important names, Andy McCabe, Pete struck because the last time they all talked in public, we didn't know nearly as much as we know now. And some of their stories need some explaining. I suspect a lot of these witnesses are lawyering up, uh, getting concerned because it's a criminal investigation by John Durham. But um, the second most important thing to watch is who's going to get a subpoena uh, in, in the Lindsey Graham part of the Russia investigation of the investigators hearings. Uh, the third one that I think is important that all the Senate committees and John Durham and, and uh, Jeff Jensen, the special prosecutors, need to be looking at, were there additional conversations between President Obama and James Comey or Andrew McCabe about Mike Flynn? That weekend of January 2, 3, 4, 5, before the president has the meeting where they talk about the Flynn transcript, where Sally Yates was shocked that the president— President Obama already knew about the intercepts of Flynn and uh, where FBI officials were concerned that if the president got his hands on it or the White House got their hands on this transcript, there would be political weaponizations of them, partisan access to grind. So the question is two things. How did the president find out about the transcript? How did he get it? And third, uh, did he give any instructions to the FBI that caused – the FBI to tell its agent who had decided we should shut down the investigation of Flynn, no evidence of wrongdoing, no evidence of counterintelligence threat, tell him don't shut it down, let's keep it going and pivot to that interview where we might catch him in a lie. I'd like to know, and I think a lot of people would like to know, what evidence is there? Were there additional phone calls, contacts between James Comey and the FBI and Obama, specifically relaying information about an ongoing and soon-to-be-closed, or should have been closed, criminal investigation of Mike Flynn. That would be remarkably important. Now, let me tell you what I did. I went to the FBI and asked the question, and guess what? They refused to give us the information, said we'd have to file a Freedom of Information Act, which will take months to get the evidence uh, if we ever get it, but um, I'm continuing to press on that front, but the investigators should be asking this question. Did Obama and Comey have additional investigative conversations about Mike Flynn Did it involve the transcripts? Did it involve keeping the case open? We know President Obama didn't like Mike Flynn. He told President Trump that. He fired Flynn back in 2014. I think we need to get to the answer to that one. So that's the third most important thing. The fourth one, we mentioned this last week. Senator Ron Johnson, chairman of the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. Uh, He issued his first subpoena in the Ukraine portion of the Investigate the Investigators. And in that case, he sent it to a Democratic firm called Blue Star Strategies, which was helping Hunter Biden's firm, Burisma Holdings, the gas company in Ukraine, try to get out of the corruption allegations they had been facing for years. Here's the big question. Will Blue Star comply? And if they don't comply, will Mitt Romney allow Senator Johnson to subpoena the Ukrainian figure who worked for Blue Star, a guy named Andrei Teloshenko, who knows everything that happened on the Burisma front, the Blue Star front, the conversations between the State Department, the White House, that's the Obama White House, by the way, and uh, Burisma, Uh, will they allow a subpoena to go to him so he can provide his evidence? That's the fourth uh, and uh, most important thing to keep an eye on. Let's watch that. Here's another thing. I think uh, Senator Johnson has been very quiet, but he's been gathering thousands upon thousands of pages of documents, including, I confirmed this with the National Archives last week, documents from the Obama administration White House. That's unusual for a former president to give up his documents without a fight. Uh, Here's the question. With all of that body of evidence, will Senator Johnson issue with his staff an interim report on everything he found on Ukraine, about Ukraine election meddling and about Hunter Biden, Burisma and the obsession of some in Ukraine and some in the United States to make the Burisma allegations go away before President Trump became president? So an interim report from Senator Johnson in the Senate Homeland and Governmental Affairs Committee. That's a very important development to keep an eye on. And then here's another one. Who else is Johnson going to call as witnesses? I think that uh, Graham, Grassley and Johnson are all going to call witnesses. I'm sure they're coordinating so that there's no duplication. And between the three of them, they should be able to give us a complete story of the Russia and um, uh, Ukraine scandals and the misconduct that investigators and investigations, the false narratives that were painted by the Adam Schiff's of the world. I'd like to know who Senator Johnson is going to call as a witness. Will it be Andre Teloshenko? Will it be Hunter Biden? Will it be Joe Biden? Will it be Joe Biden staffers? Will it be the former State Department um, officials who've already testified they saw the inappropriate appearance of a conflict of interest with Hunter Biden cashing in on Burisma, why his father was a head of Ukraine-U.S. policy I'd like to know who the witnesses. That's the sixth most important thing. And then finally, the question we've all been asking for, yes, believe it or not, a whole year already, because it was a year ago this month that Attorney General Bill Barr named John Durham, special prosecutor, to investigate the investigators in Russia. Will there ever be any criminal charges? Ever. It's been a, a year. Most cases don't take that long to bring a single charge. Now, what do we know already? There were two opportunities for Durham and Barr to bring charges, one against Comey one against McCabe, both recommendations from the inspector general, Michael Horowitz, who gave us that important report back in December. And so the question is, they passed on both of those. They declined prosecution. Will there be any uh, prosecutions? Here's two things to look for. There could be indictments. I think if there are, there'll be a small number, not a large number. There also could be some plea deals, what we call criminal informations, where people plead out and agree to cooperate, I think June and July are the months to watch to see if Durham delivers anything or whether he's nothing but a report and a big dud. We'll have to wait and see. I know a lot of people believe there's criminality, but only John Durham knows the body of evidence that's really there. We've seen glimpses of it, and it shocks our conscience, but it's up to that prosecution team and Attorney General Barr to decide if it reaches the stage of uh, criminality. So let's keep an eye on that and see what happens. That is the seventh most important development to watch and the one that I think we're probably all going to watch most closely. So those are my seven picks. Now we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jerry Falwell Jr. talks about the extraordinary media malfeasance in reporting on COVID-19 at Liberty University, which by the way, didn't happen. And we're going to hear from Congressman Matt Gates, the Florida congressman who has been a, leading voice on the Russia investigation of investigators, two very, very important interviews coming up. You're not going to want to miss them. But first, let's go to the commercial break.
1: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole?
0: All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, Jerry Falwell, Jr., the president of Liberty University and one of the all-around great guys, one of my good friends. Uh, Jerry, welcome to the show.
2: It's an honor to be with you. I um, really appreciate it.
0: Well, we're uh, we're honored to have you. And um, you have one of the most outrageous stories of media malfeasance that I've seen in the last few months the uh, the storyline that when you
2: first of all I want to congratulate you on your perseverance and tenacity over the last three years in exposing the uh, corrupt Obama administration and their Department of Justice and you never gave up it's like when Winston Churchill gave that speech I forget which (laughs) college it was a commencement speech after World War two only said three words he said never give up that was his whole speech and that right. reminds me of you because you just every night I watch John Hannity, you'd be pounding a, a new uh, angle, and it's finally uh, looks like John Durham's finally going to bring some justice to those folks.
0: I think so, and thank you for your kind words. It, you know, the, the truth is the facts are always there; people just had to be willing to go dig for them. And uh, we've been fortunate to to get the truth out. And uh, thank you; that means a lot coming from you. It really does.
2: Thank you for thank you for doing that.
0: Thank you. That means a lot. Well, uh, speaking of a lack of facts, uh, your university and you were smeared in extraordinary ways back in March when you made the decision to keep your campus open during the coronavirus outbreak. And uh, I I have gone back and I can't find a single news article that went back and corrected itself. But I want to read a couple headlines just to set this up for our readers, because it's jaw dropping. Um, I, I remember some of these. I think the Daily Beast it was had the uh, if Liberty University reopens, people will die. Remember that? quote from uh, from a physician then there was a, the New York the New York Times which used to be fit to read but I'm not sure it is anymore uh, Liberty University brings back its students and coronavirus too so they accused you of bringing coronavirus into the campus and then uh, I think there were a couple other um, I think uh, it was maybe the Financial Times had a article saying that 12 students promptly came down with coronavirus um, let me ask you, did any of those actually come true?
2: No, zero cases on campus. We had zero cases, many students, about twelve hundred students came back. We normally have about eight thousand living on campus, sixteen thousand attending classes there. none of them it all went to online format for those sixteen thousand and the uh but the ones that live on campus, some had elderly relatives at home, some had didn't have high high speed internet at their home, so they kept, they had no couldn't do their education and others were just international students so they they came back and we did we did all we took all the safety measures the uh governor of virginia governor blackface sent a, a couple surprise inspections down right at the beginning and they gave us glowing re- reviews and reports on how well we were doing and and following all the guidelines so we didn't break any rules we did everything by the book we uh we protected our students We we Put no trespassing signs all over campus to keep others out from bringing the, the virus into the campus. This area has got about a quarter million people, and we've only had about 189 cases and three deaths over the whole course of the of the pandemic. And so, it's not a hot spot by any means. But we still put up no trespassing signs. The only ones that we know who trespassed were the New York Times reporters and the ProPublica reporters. <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, maybe it's they're amazing. trying to make their story it's, come true. Yeah, complete okay. disregard for uh, our, the health of our students. Wow,
0: it's it's just extraordinary. So no no students have come down with coronavirus. No faculty came down. Everything has been fine, and you were able to give those students who were trapped a place to stay stay on campus, even as others took the remote learning option. Um, what happens? Did any of these? Uh...
2: I got thank I got thank you letters from so many parents who just uh, so much appreciated us giving their yeah. young people a place to, to shelter.
0: It, it is remarkable. And yet all the bad press, you would swear that's something horrific. And uh, I have a couple other headlines I dug up as I was. We're going to put all these headlines up on Just the News so people can see how bad the media really was on this. But I think it was the Washington Post. I'm just looking at this headline here. An authoritarian power structure brought coronavirus to Liberty University. Has the Post ever corrected that story or headline?
2: No, none of them have. And and we we've drafted a complaint. A New York law firm's drafted a complaint against the New York Times. That took me an hour to read the other night, and it's uh, it's gonna be fun to watch them squirm. But it's it's uh, still. I mean, all they have to do is come out. Well, the problem is 750 different news outlets picked up their false story. That's right. And there's no way they can get those outlets to pick up nope. the correction, even if they decided to correct it, which they won't because they're so arrogant. But it's just, uh, I think they've, I think they to survive financially, they've become more like Buzzfeed than the New York Times. I think they've, oh, you know, I they're all about hear click, that. click, all about clickbait, all about, you know, I think they actually, what i was told is somebody wrote a book that used to work there said they actually take money from advertisers to print negative stories about the their advertisers competitors <laughs> yeah. and so so people read a story they think it's an, a legitimate news story but it's really just an ad a paid for ad and if that's yeah. true then they've they've become um you know they've become um a shadow of what they once were and it's um it's sad to see It was an American institution that was respected for a long time.
0: Yeah, it was. And it did a lot of great uh, good over the years. And then uh, somehow in these last five years, and to me, it starts with the very story we talked about, right, Russia, where there are stories on the front page of the New York Times never been retracted against the president that are now blatantly false. And now... It carries on to to folks like you. Do you you think it's because you're conservative, because you're aligned with Trump, because you're a man of faith? What drives the media to to attack you and then when it's wrong, just pretend like nothing ever happened?
2: Yeah, I think it's because of uh, my support for a non-establishment candidate in 2015, 2016, early 2016. Trump is not a traditional Republican. I think nobody ever really uh, cared when when. When when conservatives supported Bush, McCain, Romney, but all of a sudden, if you support Trump, you're uh, you're the Antichrist, you know. And it's uh, <laughs> it's they they can't take you know anything that challenges their power structure. And um, they thought that the, the Obama administration thought they had this country locked down. They thought they had control for would have control for generations to come and we'd become a socialist nation. And that's why they were so arrogant in believing that they could just, just undo an election. And they, uh, uh, you know, they had that arrogance that made them think they could pull that off. And, and they found out quickly that the American people were not falling for their, for their storyline and for their, uh, you know, for their, for their trickery. And so they were shocked, I believe when, um, Trump won and when when, uh, you know, they, they couldn't do anything about it. So it's uh, but it's 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 so uh, I'm so excited. I'm cautiously optimistic about John Durham's um, conclusions. And that's I think our country's you know, rule of law <clears throat> depends on him coming through and doing the right thing.
0: Our country also depended on an accurate media. And we, we've got to find a way either to create a new generation of journalists or somebody to stop the sort of silliness that happened to you. I mean, um, you look and you're, you know, your your families, your students are not not only satisfied with your performance, they're grateful for what you did. And you'd never know that from the, the hundreds and hundreds of news stories that were written during that moment of emotion speaking of students you you're finished for this year but what happens in the fall what are your plans for the fall as you as you get the university ready for september
2: you know i was listening to the president mitch daniels president of purdue university last night on martha McCallum's show and he made a lot of sense what he said he he said the science dictates that that his school open we feel the same way the chances of someone college age contracting this virus um and passing away is is almost zero and that's about 80% of his community he said right same thing at Liberty we do have faculty members that are older and so we're looking at ways like he like he's already announced um, you know putting plexiglass up to separate the professors from the students in the classroom um, you know other other measures to protect the ones that might be at risk but but it all can be done and, we, and it all can be done safely and we um it's business as usual and our enrollment is the same as it was this time last year we're not trying to grow the resident program our online enrollment is up 10% over the Unreal. same day last year
0: how many uh, online students do you have now
2: we just went over 100,000 2 weeks ago first time ever Great. our previous high was 98,000 in 2014 and so now um, we're going to end up at about 106,000 for this for this fiscal year, and the next year we're up 10% over that. So it's it's just exploding, and I think it's a wave of the future for higher education. But so many prestigious Ivy League type schools think it's beneath them to provide online <laughs> education to to adults because they it's just not traditional. It's not prestige, Whatever the word is, but they right. they um, you know they're doing a disservice to their students. We try to tr- try to treat students like customers we charge. We're in the lowest 25%, um, 25% um, of private colleges in, in our tuition for online in-resident. and resident. We, and we wanna keep it affordable and keep our best professors in the classroom and send it, instead of sending them off to Sweden to do research or something. And it like so many other schools. <laughs> it's
0: another Ivy League thing, isn't it? Yeah. I was on a plane a couple of um, months ago coming back from uh, the Midwest and I sat next to this young young fellow who had just uh, graduated and he had just finished the Liberty University online course and he was a um, a retired soldier. He was a, a, a retired military services and he said that so many of his colleagues in the military had taken advantage of Liberty because their lifestyle didn't allow to go away for six months of school and being able to learn at night and on weekends was empowering for him. And so you're doing a lot, particularly for our veterans and and, uh, those in the military taking advantage of this online learning opportunity, aren't you?
2: Well, it's, it's military and it's, uh, we have 27% African-Americans in our online, online university. We have uh, lots of first responders. We have, um, 65% 65% of our online students are low income, and 2,000 of the 100,000 are Virginia students, and they, they, they qualify for a special tuition assistance grant from the state of Virginia. Well, The governor of Virginia, that's the only group he targeted were the military, the minorities, the low income students. He eliminated that tuition assistance grant just recent, just in the last few weeks. That's so we're right. Providing yeah. that same, we're providing that same grant now to any student in Virginia who wants to study online. But we're not just providing the money. We're we're buying their claim against the governor of Virginia because it's a violation of the equal protection clause of the Constitution to treat one group of students different from another. So that, this, that way they don't have to sue the governor. We're going to do it for them. <laughs> so wow. It should, be interesting, it should be interesting to watch that play out.
0: We'll be looking for that lawsuit. That'll be coming up soon, I imagine, huh?
2: It'll be a little while, but it's uh, yeah. it's in the works for sure.
0: Well, you've been an innovator in the education space and, and the size of your student body is an affirmation that what you've done has, has uh, transformed education. And so... Now all we need to do is transform media so that they cover you a little more fairly. That'll be the next big uh, challenge for us all.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you do that. I don't know if, if uh, I don't. I just don't see how the government can uh, can rein that group in. It's it's.
0: Yeah, it's got to come from within. It's got it. It's got to start with. We were so wrong. We have to just get this right. And I just don't know whether that shame point's been reached yet.
2: I don't know. I don't know. That that's a tough one. But it's uh, it's. You're right. It has to come from within media itself. They have to. Return to the roots and um, yeah, and try to be try to be a real journalist, like you are, like you
0: are. Oh. Uh, well, thank you. You're very kind. Well, on behalf of a profession that really wronged you, Jerry, I want to thank you for uh, for joining us. We're gonna uh, share this with our listeners, and I know they're going to um, they're going to go back and look at these headlines and just be amazed by the the malfeasance that, that the profession practiced against you and your university and. We, uh, we wish you a good summer and a, a successful start to your fall semester. The
2: worst part about it was is they were on campus for several days during that week. They never spoke to anybody at Liberty. They talked to a doctor across town who had had some students come, see him, his, come to his practice because they had upper respiratory colds and allergies. And he told them that, but he told them you should talk to the on-campus doctor who has got runs a clinic on campus. They refused to talk to her. But then when they left that Sunday about noon, they called us and said, uh, we, 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 they had already written the story, but they asked a few questions they gave us till three o'clock when they published. So they, it was all a setup and it's, um, it's just, so it's, it's all going to be outlined in this lawsuit, but it's, it's something I think you, uh, You'll enjoy when you see it.
0: We're, we're grateful that you stood up for the truth and that also, I, I have to shout out one journalist who did get this right, because William McGurn at the Wall Street Journal went back, well, the only journalist to go back and find out, did it really happen? And he found out the truth, which it never happened.
2: Well, he called us out of the blue and we're so grateful for his, uh, that that started to get the word out to, because everybody believed the original.
0: Of course. Yeah, it was in the New York Times. Of course you're going to believe it, Right.
2: Yeah, a lot of people still believe it, but it's just, uh, wow. we're going to fight and they're not going to get away with it, I promise.
0: Well, that is good news to hear. We we need to have more accountability in this profession if we're ever going to fix it. So uh, on behalf of Just the News and John Solomon Reports, here, I want to thank you very much. I know you're very busy, but uh, thanks for the time and we'll be sure to get this story out to our audience.
2: No, John, great to be with you. Thank you so much. Okay, it's time to commit.
0: all right folks welcome back from the commercial break and as promised the congressman matt gates from florida is here with us and i've got some news about congressman gates he's got a brand new podcast called hot takes with matt gates you should check it out it's awesome i'm going to be a subscriber right away congressman welcome to the show
1: oh thanks so much john and thanks for mentioning my podcast hot takes with matt gates i think that the news of the day really opens the door into a lot of the work of the Congress. And so each and every weekday, uh, I do about 20 minutes. So it's fast, tight, and uh, it'll get you ready on your drive home to be well-informed as to how uh, the, the news and work of the Congress informs on people's lives. So I'm super excited about it. Thanks for mentioning that's, it.
0: That's fantastic. I'm adding it to my podcast list today once I found out about it. So I'll be a listener too. So that's really great. Congratulations. All right. All right. There's so much going on. And let's start with the breaking news. So we have uh, been without a FISA law for a couple months. We haven't had any terrible things happen. And so, uh, but the uh, there's an effort to ramrod through some version of a new law to get the FISA capabilities uh, up and running again. I think you have some concerns about what they're trying to do behind the scenes. Can you describe a little bit just what's going on in the back doors of Congress right now?
1: I can, John, and this is literally unfolding during our conversation. Uh, President Trump last week said that up until this point in time, he had really deferred to Mitch McConnell on the design of a FISA reauthorization. And of course, those of us most concerned about how FISA had been weaponized against the president and used as a political tool, we really wanted to see major structural reforms, not just a little bit of virtue signaling, a little bit of sanding off some rough edges. We really wanted to change the way that system works because right, right now, John, it, it, it only is as good as the people running it. Right? There, there is no mechanism by which the, the system or the institution can stop corrupt people. And that really is the touchstone of our reform objective. And so uh, the president set that as the standard. The Senate sendover over a bill. Interestingly, only two senators voted uh, on the Republican side voted against the bill. It was Richard Burr, who wants no reforms. He's got a lot of his own problems right now. And then he Rand sure Paul, who probably wouldn't support a reauthorization at all. And so then the president says he wants House Republicans to vote against it. And guess what? Late last night, about you know, 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, Nancy Pelosi didn't have the votes for the reauthorization that I think empowers the leadership and empowers the, the sort of intelligence apparatus over those of us who want to see major changes. So in, in a very short period of time, Nancy Pelosi is going to try to get a motion to approve a conference committee so that Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy's picks, can go and work with Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer's picks to try to develop a legislative solution. I will be voting against that appointment of a conference committee because I don't think that you pick a club within a club within the Congress to deal (laughs) with these major issues. I actually think that we need open hearings. We need to come back to Washington. We need to bring forward witnesses. We need to hear a lot more from the inspector general. But as we sit here today, John, Nancy Pelosi trying to get a smaller and smaller group of senators and congressmen together to try to uh, reorient the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance
0: Act. That's a storyline we've heard time again. When there are tough decisions, you just try to get a party of a few to pass what uh, the party of the rest of us will have to live with. And let's remind folks that uh, just recently, the Inspector General of the Justice Department reviewed 29 FISA applications. In all 29 had errors that violated the FBI's rule. They were 29 for 29 uh, bad. Uh, There's got to be something far more sweeping to be done to correct that behavior. So it'll be interesting to see how this this vote plays out. Uh, Do you think they have the votes for a conference? Yeah,
1: yeah. Hey, John, let me just highlight two of the major substantive issues that are creating this rub. Please one is whether or not this will convert from a non-adversarial process to an adversarial process. So right now, as you've reported, the government sort of goes in with the judge and there's no one else there asking tough questions about the predicating material and the subsourcing and the individuals that are cited as having unique credibility on these questions. So we believe that there should be a permanent amicus there to ask the tough questions and to try to poke the holes in the government's case so that we really get a more complete version of the facts. So that's, that's I'd say, the first major rub. Some of the national security-type folks don't like that. Some of the civil libertarians do. The second is what standard uh, one should have to acquire to do bulk collection of people's internet searches, of their emails, and uh, Warren Davidson and Zoe Lofgren in the House. Uh, Senator Daines and Senator Wyden in the Senate have led the effort to restore the probable cause standard rather than just a suspicion standard. And the reason that's important is that while the probable cause standard certainly isn't perfect, it happens to be the best ever designed by human beings on the planet, and we have a real doctrine around that standard. We know what it means, and when you water it down for one particular group of searches or infringements on rights – it, it really can go off the rails very quickly. So if you're wondering what it is we're debating about in the pri- in, in the back rooms, it's those two principal issues.
0: Well, that's important. Those are important issues. And the idea in every other court in America, you have a representative when uh, when you're accused of something, and, and the FISA court is the one place where you don't. So having that, what we call amicus, or that, uh, Lawyer and absentia i 'd call it um, is going to be an important reform if it can get done. that would be transformational and it 's interesting. There are people on the the left and the right that both agree that that 's a good solution right
1: absolutely on these issues of intelligence and surveillance and civil rights, you can 't really map it out by Republicans versus Democrats. We have Republicans and Democrats on really both sides of this issue. It really is more about whether or not someone believes in a stronger government control or more individual liberty, I typically fall more on the individual liberty side of that spectrum.
2: Of but course. certainly
1: when you see how the government control has been abused. When you see that the system that has been designed and built cannot survive against corrupt people, that it, that it, it, it can't uh, quell that corruption, that's when you need these types of major structural changes.
0: It's... Um... Those are such important issues, as is the probable cause standard, because that's the standard for search warrants generally. And yet the FISA warrant has had the uh, the lower standard, which has potentially led to the sort of issues that we've seen in the the Russia case, where their probable cause wasn't even in sniffing distance of what they were proposing to the court. Uh, They had nothing. They had third hand suggestion of suggestions.
1: Yeah, It wasn't probable cause. It was just a corrupt cause for them. (laughs)
0: <laughs> there you go. That's an important line. I remember that line. Well, the, um, I want to ask you, because since the last time you were on our podcast, we've had a dizzying um, uh, array of disclosures. And it, we sort of went from a, a period where you were lucky to squeeze any water out of the cactus to get some disclosure to now dramatic disclosures coming every two or three days in the, the Russia investigation. I want to ask of all the things you've seen, and you, you, you were one of the earliest people to see this for what it was and to call it out and to put pressure on the Justice Department to give us disclosure, what are the most important new developments of the investigation of the investigators in your mind?
1: Uh, to me, the Grinnell disclosure that Russian intelligence was not only targeting the substore sources of the Steele dossier, that our own government knew. … that the subsources of the Steele dossier had been targeted by foreign intelligence, and we relied on it anyway, presented it to a court anyway, and didn't tell the court that, we, that the subsources were being targeted by Russian intelligence. To me, the reason that's so significant, John, is because it proves what we've been saying about the left always accusing us of what they're doing, <laughs> You know, the, the, the notion that you had a D- DNC-funded operation that was co-mingling, at least in interest, at least in perception and ambition, with Russian intelligence, uh, it really, I think, wraps this all up. When it comes to how high this went up into the Obama White House, I think we've still got a little more digging left to do. And let me suggest to you what I think are some of the most important disclosures yet to come. Please do. We know that our intelligence community had to Tom Sawyer a few other uh, countries into doing the work that we weren't allowed to do. You know, it wasn't always the U.S. intelligence community whitewashing the proverbial fence when it came to George Papadopoulos and Dr. Carter Page and and others. We got others to do it for us. And so those correspondence with foreign governments, foreign actors, could not have solely occurred at sort of the Peter Strzok level or even the Jim Comey level. I think that for those other governments to have gotten engaged and involved and, and that they were willing to do some of the dirty work uh, would have to get tied back to senior officials in the Obama White House you know, uh, and, and maybe all the way to the top. And that's what I think is around the corner in the disclosure cycle that we're in.
0: If you had to guess, I mean, we talk about Five Eyes, the alliance of uh, America's closest intelligence allies. A lot of of smoke signals that Great Britain was involved. There's a text message from Pete Strzok a few days before uh, the the Steele dossiers leaked where he talks about exposure to Great Britain's intelligence service. And he's not talking about um, Steele because Steele's been out of service for a long time. But is Great Britain one of those countries that we might learn some activities about, if you had to guess?
1: Uh, Yeah, I would think that Great Britain Great Britain would be uh, precisely you know, the type of country that we would go to when you look at the activities in and out of London, when you look at some of the, the names and people involved. Uh, I think it's, it's quite possible that senior Obama administration officials, maybe even the president uh, or Vice President Biden, we, we still have to discover, we still have to get more documents and communications revealed. But I think that it would have had to occur at that level. Like, I don't think Great Britain or Australia or Italy or any other country gets involved in performing our intel operations on a political hit job from, like, just a Peter Strzok or Jim Comey outreach.
0: Yeah, there's no doubt. And we know from your great interviews back in 2018 that Bill Priestap, the man who seemed to have a conscience, according to his handwritten notes at least, um, that Priestap was in London. uh, And when he was asked what he was doing there in May of 2018, 16 he said he couldn't talk about it because it was part of the ongoing russia case so um london i think is going to become an intersection uh italy australia do those come to mind at all
1: Do you remember who was the uh, station chief for the CIA over in London?
0: I believe it may be our current CIA director, Gina Haspel. Weird. Yes, the connections are pretty remarkable. And uh, my reporting indicates that the CIA and Gina Haspel have been very helpful to John Durham's investigation in recent weeks. And so we may get some pretty remarkable disclosures here because the CIA would, let me ask you this, the CIA would probably be the most logical intersection point if you were going to try to ask your allies to get involved in something that... U.S. intelligence or U.S. law enforcement couldn't do yet because the evidence wasn't warranting of it. That's where you'd probably turn, right, the CIA? Uh,
1: One would think that that would be where you would go for the engagement. But, you know, that's why I think also we've got to get these recordings or transcripts, if they exist, from the Papadopoulos and Carter Page offensives that that our government was running. I mean, it's just inconceivable to me that— someone would run Intel at Page and Papadopoulos without having some sort of a recording device. And so that means that somewhere those transcripts of what Page and Papadopoulos were saying are available. That's and right. we have not seen or heard about those yet. And I think they're going to really, really uh, shed a lot of light on the total lack of predication, because I think you're going to see Page and Papadopoulos when Intel is being run at them saying things like, hey, you know, We're not breaking the law. We're not doing anything illegal with Russia. That's right. That's certainly exculpatory.
0: Yeah, no, we've seen at least one of those transcripts from Papadopoulos already. They help our interactions in September, but he has long said, he suspected, he's told me this, I know he's told you this, George Papadopoulos said he thought Alexander Downer was recording him on his cell phone when they met at the London Bar in May. If such a recording exists at that time, that could be really essential evidence.
1: Absolutely. And I can't imagine that Downer would be running the operation he was running without a recording device. Uh, So we'll see.
0: Yeah, that's very important. I think those are going to be big revelations. How disturbed are you to learn about all the things you've learned about Mike Flynn? I know they're going to release the Mike Flynn uh, transcript about the Russian ambassador. Quite frankly, we know so much about it, that's going to be almost uh, anticlimactic. But... The conduct of the FBI and keeping the case open when there was no basis to do so, when their own career agents had shut it down, uh, given the time frame of that weekend in in early January, do you think the White House was meddling in the Flynn investigation?
1: Oh, we we know better than that, uh, John. We know based on the unmasking logs and we know based on the meeting notes and the Susan Rice email that the Flynn activity did go to the top that that was something that President Obama was directly involved in, that Vice President Biden was directly involved in. We just have to now go through and figure out at which decision points uh, were they calling the shots. But their involvement is now, I think, well-evidenced. It's just a question of which particular decisions did they make or guide, uh, rather than simply setting the tone that they wanted to be as disruptive as possible and as not just disrupted, but delegitimizing as possible. This wasn't an effort to stumble the president. It was quite literally an effort to have the country believe that he wasn't legitimately elected. And that has done far more damage to our democracy than anything the left has accused President Trump of doing.
0: It is remarkable. If you're Vladimir Putin, you have to be thanking all the people who carried out the three-year investigation, because it achieved more damage to our democracy than any of the um, other activities that the Russians ever managed to do in America, and he turned our own intelligence agencies into his propaganda arm. It's really remarkable, Re- really remarkable. The um, we've talked a lot uh, over the last few years about the FBI and, and has it come to grips with what it did wrong, and is it on a better course now? What's your diagnosis? If you're the doctor and the FBI is the patient, what's your diagnosis of the current Christopher Ray FBI? Uh, this day, a couple of weeks after he announced the internal investigation of, of the Flynn matter and the earlier review. Do you feel like the FBI is coming to grips with what it did wrong and what it can get right?
1: Well, I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, but I would not give the FBI a clean bill of health. Uh, perhaps the the acuity of the disease is diminished because more of us are actively engaged in oversight than when Paul Ryan was in charge and the FBI basically knew that The Justice Department would never have to really respond to to document requests because Ryan wasn't ever going to be serious about oversight. Now I think that you've got uh, the president more aware of what happened now that there's more attention given to the issue. The acuity level of the disease is not as bad, but I do believe there are chronic ailments that still exist at the FBI, and I think that the proverbial X-ray, to torture the metaphor a bit more, (laughs) <laughs> would be the uh Horowitz Inspector General report that said, Gosh, you know, I looked at these dozens of files and you know, every single time we opened a file there's something that the government had done wrong. And that is just not indicative of a clean bill of health.
0: It uh, It's not. And uh, the, uh, you can see that some of these issues like cheating on the FISA, uh, failing to manage confidential human sources like Christopher Steele, went far beyond that case that they're systemic issues of cheating that the FBI has just gotten away with for so long. And uh, I think that's why your oversight and others who've provided it is beginning to, to at least focus attention on what needs to be fixed. That's uh, a remarkable accomplishment by you and Congressman Jordan and uh, Senators Grassley Johnson and, and uh, Graham. Speaking of Senator Graham, uh, we get R- Rod Rosenstein on the box for the first time next week as a witness. What do you think are the most important questions that Rod Rosenstein needs to answer?
1: Rod Rosenstein still hasn't answered the questions that I asked him nearly two years ago. That's right. I said, well, you know, Mr. Deputy Attorney General, your signature is on this FISA renewal. Did you read it before you signed it? And the answer was like a handful of howdy and a mouthful of much obliged. He wanted to give <laughs> me a you know 12-minute description of the FISA process instead of simply answering the question whether he had read what he had signed. Uh, yeah. I also don't believe – that Rod Rosenstein has sufficiently been called to account for suggesting that the 25th Amendment be invoked and that he would wear a wire. And he, his answer was, well, I was joking. Uh, that doesn't cut it. You don't get to joke about removing the president of the United States and wearing a wire on him when you're a deputy attorney general. And so I think that there, there, there were elements of this coup attempt – that installed people not only, you know, in the Obama government, obviously, but the Trump government. I mean, Comey was essentially the inside man that goes from the Obama government to the Trump government, and then yep. they were able to get Rosenstein in, and then Sessions, who, you know, I mean, good lord, I hope he's not returning to Washington with any any power to wield. Uh, Jeff Sessions came an employee at the Justice Department rather than a leader, and Rod Rosenstein was able to keep this. Uh, delegitimizing their investigation rolling when it should have been shut down. It should have never begun. It was corrupt from the beginning, but there were so many opportunities to peel back the layers of the onion, to realize that this was a rotten political endeavor, not a counterintelligence or law enforcement endeavor, and to shut it down. But you know, instead, Rosenstein, I think, allowed it to play out with the hopes that you know, there, there could be some obstruction of justice smear on the back end.
0: Yeah, it's almost the same thing they did with Flynn, right? We can't get him on a counterintelligence threat. Let's see if we can catch him lying. I think they couldn't get Trump on anything, Russia collusion, because there was zero evidence. So then the idea was, could they create a, a, create a crime out of obstruction? It seems like they used the same pattern twice to to hamper this administration. And that's exactly what our founding fathers never intended our law enforcement apparatus to do one last question on Ro- Rosenstein. Um, recently, the scoping memo came out the August, 2017 scoping memo. And it clearly shows that one of the predicates he gave to uh, special prosecutor, Mueller, was uh, stuff derived solely from the Steele dossier and specifically information from the Steele dossier that by August 2017 had been debunked. This is that he met with the two Igors in Russia. Uh, The FBI had known not only that 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 had not happened, but that it most likely came from a Russian intelligence disinformation campaign, that specific allegation of Carter Page. How problematic is it that the special counsel investigation was predicated on evidence that the FBI knew to be false and disproven.
1: It is problematic that that was the original predication. But as I think your question drills down on, it's equally problematic that there were continued renewals and there were continued affirmations of the legitimacy of this investigation long after we learned of its corrupt origins and of its political ambitions. And that's really where Rosenstein has to be held to account you know he rosenstein did not start this investigation i mean i honestly think that this really all started in the obama white house but then sure. rosenstein and sort of the lifer brought in to ensure that it isn't shut down that it's able to be maintained And just like you said when they when they needed some paper to try to legitimize the Steele dossier as a basis to continue uh, Rosenstein was the guy that developed it. And remember, we weren't being quiet during this time. You know, your reporting, Sarah Carter's reporting, uh, the the investigative work that Meadows and Jordan and DeSantis and myself were doing was continually calling into question this dossier. You had Schiff and their team saying the dossier is true. Nothing in the dossier is unproven. And, and that's why – Rosenstein wanted to give the imprimatur of legitimacy to it with the scoping memo to try to crowd out, uh, at least in the focus of the Mueller team, the legitimate and now proven correct criticisms that that we were offering.
0: Yeah, no, that's the key. Boy, history will look back at Adam Schiff's public statements in 27 and in 2018, I think in a very harsh light, because they've all, nearly all been proven uh, wrong well, Congressman, it's always a pleasure to have a, a conversation with you, whether in a podcast or in a green room. I want to thank you for all you've done to help my reporting and to help us get the truth on this. And we wish you luck with your podcast and with all those negotiations you're headed into with the FISA law uh, later today.
1: Yeah, thank you very much Ford it. And, and, John, one thing we just have to keep in mind is that the left doesn't stay stagnant with their tactics. They evolved from Russia to Ukraine. You know, the work you did to blow a hole in the Russia story, the Russia hoax really, was something that they didn't want to have happen in Ukraine. And so they were actually deft enough, nimble enough to turn their cannons on you, on Rudy Giuliani, uh, on, you know, those of us in Congress who've been very active. And I think it's just really important for the listeners to understand that these podcast platforms, where you can give direct reporting, where I can give a direct analysis on Hot Takes with Matt Gates, it's so essential so that people don't don't have to endure that filter, and so that we can actually ensure that we direct the government to its highest and most proper virtues.
0: Wow, that's such a great point. Uh, getting beyond the filter of a media who was a co-conspirator in this whole Russia case is so important. And uh, thank you for making that point. That's a very, very important point. All right, folks, we'll be back from the commercial break in a couple seconds to wrap things up. Again, thank you, Congressman Matt Gates. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, John. All right, folks, that wraps up another week's worth of John Solomon Reports podcast at Just the News. Stay tuned at Just the News. We're going to have lots of breaking developments, perhaps most important. Uh, Remember those seven areas to watch in the Russia and Ukraine investigations with Grassley, Johnson, Graham, uh, the things I mentioned. Uh, Matt Gates gave us some real food for thought, uh, raising the possibility that some of the next big disclosures in the Russia case may involve foreign uh, uh, interference in our election, foreign assistance to Donald Trump, uh, or to uh, the investigators trying to get Donald Trump. Uh, that's a big headline that uh, we, if he's right, will turn into some pretty big news. Uh, and uh, let's keep in mind that what happened at Liberty University and with the false reporting by the New York Times and others, suggesting there was a coronavirus outbreak at a university that did not happen, and yet those media organizations haven't corrected their stories. That's something that should worry us all. Uh, What a week it's been. I thank you for listening uh, to the two regular editions and that extra special edition we did with General Spaulding. I wish you a good weekend, uh, and uh, we'll be back next week with lots of uh, more great groundbreaking news.